Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Orlando Murrin. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Salia Mahmoud Ahmed about her favourite dish. Now, Salia, you look as fresh as a daisy, if I might say so, but I think you might have been up all night. I was up all night. Uh, I... I'm a doctor, I'm a gastroenterologist, and I was on call for gastrointestinal hemorrhage in the northwest London region last night. So anybody who had an internal bleed, I had to wake up and sort out. Uh, so I have been up a little bit, but I'm very excited to be here nonetheless. Well, can I say thank you very much for, for being here and uh, and thank you for looking after your patients. <laughs> but you're here in a, in a food capacity, obviously, because yes. as well as that... Uh, very important job, you managed to squeeze in winning MasterChef and writing cookery books and food books. So it must be quite a life. It is quite life. And to add to that, I've got two children as well, which are... <laughs> how, how old are they? Eight years old and two years old. So uh, Blimey. Yeah. yeah. So it's a busy old life at the moment. You must have a good support structure, do you? To... Well, I think it is really important to have a, a support structure because, um, you know, I always... I used to hear growing up, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. But in the same way, I think it takes a lot of people, good people around you to be successful in any sphere of your life, whether that's professional or personal. And that's always been my belief. So I'm extraordinarily 
lucky to have good people around me in all spheres of my life. How do you fit in the cooking? Do you do that um, in your in your spare time or in bouts of time? Or how does how how do you, what does your weekly schedule look like? I mean, I cook incessantly because I find it relaxing. For me, cooking is a sort of mindful activity. I, When I cook, I feel less tired and less stressed and less anxious and less worried. I feel, you know, the clinks of pots and pans, the chopping of, uh, you know, my knife going against the chopping board. I find it so therapeutic. One of my favourite things to do when I'm angry or frustrated is go through nuts with a knife. And it's just that... <laughs> you know, when you go through pistachios or walnuts and you go, oh, God, it's so relaxing. So I find great comfort and solace in food. And I I don't have that much time, which is why I think short bursts of cooking on a daily basis are extremely important for me and very fulfilling. And they, I think that the fallacy is that you have to be cooking for a really long period of time every day and really planning it really, really well to be able to enjoy it. Actually, short, sharp bursts of clever cookery where you're in the moment alone away from everybody else and doing something personal for you is really important and actually I view cooking as a form of self-care in a life where I don't really have that much time for self-care so for me I've framed cooking as an act of self-care I couldn't agree more we we were talking to another guest about how how you get how it frees you up while you're cooking and it lets the brain do other things now as a um, a medic you probably know what's really happening in one's brain but i just get the feeling that it's working out problems and sorting things out while i'm apparently concentrating on doing something mechanical and pleasant and which does people good yeah absolutely i think this varies amongst people in the extent to which it does it because some people quite honestly find cooking quite frustrating but but for those where all the cogs have aligned, I think it causes this, causes this incredible dopaminergic release in the brain, which is, you know, that feeling of reward and fulfillment, that feeling where the anxiety kind of lies away from you and you feel really refreshed and um, you feel as if some of the weight of the world has been lifted off your shoulders. And the flip side of it is it's also so rewarding because at the end of it, you've got a meal in front of you. And when you've got a meal that you've cooked yourself in front of you, I can tell you as a gastroenterologist you are on your way to achieving digestive health and happiness because you've cooked something from scratch which is going to be good for your gut and it isn't going to be a highly processed terrible food so it's going to have an impact not just on your gut health but on your mental health on your uh, preventing heart disease preventing diabetes preventing strokes and those are all sort of long-term gains which you may not know or even think about but that is happening in the background when you're cooking so it's not just that very moment in time. It's a long-term impact that home-cooked food has on your body, on your life in, in general. How fantastic. And what good news for people who enjoy cooking uh, and cooking food from scratch, which I hope is lots of our listeners. Yes. Now, what's your um, cooking background? What, what, did, what food did you have uh, when you were young? Um, 
I mean, we ate a, a whole variety of food growing up, but I'm from a, a Pakistani family with Kashmiri descent. And uh, what that means is that we cooked a lot of Pakistani food. When I say we, my mum did. My mum cooked a lot of Pakistani food at home. And what does that what does that mean, Pakistani food? So traditional Pakistani food is, uh, you're highly unlikely to be able to find it anywhere in a restaurant. This is food that's cooked in people's homes. It tends to be fairly meat heavy. So lots and lots of meat-based um, sort of, I, I don't like the word curry for many reasons, but um, sort of curry-like um, dishes, uh, often much thinner, um, gone into like a, a verging on like a soup or a stew form that you then put over rice, lots of lentil dishes, lots of um, quick vegetable dishes that you do with, that we had with flatbreads. Rice was always a staple in our house because my mum, bless her, you know, she was also an NHS doctor, but she was so motivated to provide her children healthy, hot, nutritious food in the evenings that she somehow managed to come up with these incredible tricks to make sure that despite working, she fed fresh food to three children and a husband every single day that we were growing up. And the dining table was an incredibly important part of our house. It wasn't just the food that you were eating. You had to talk. You know, you had to engage in the eating process. You had to be present in that moment with the people around you. It wasn't acceptable to be in your own mental space. That was time for you to be with your family in whatever capacity. Um, so food was a way of connecting with the family. Um, Pakistani traditional food, people don't know much about, as I said, but really it's meat-based, rice-based Plenty of spices. Um, probably it's sounding very tasty. T ta very tasty rich indeed. And tasty. Very rich and tasty. Um, and uh, sort of comforting, sort of soul, soul food, you could say. Um, you know, f to this day, you know, when I'm in extreme stress, for example, having just delivered a child, you know, uh, what I crave immediately after giving birth to my children is my mum's lamb and potato curry. Um, we call it salon, right? Or shorba, which is like a thinner sort of stew which you pour over rice. So every time I have a baby, I make her make it. And every time I have it, I mean, I've only had two children, but, you know, and I've eaten it many times in between. But the times you have it when you are so tired and stressed, it's like instant instant uplifting it's there's nothing else that has the power to do that there is no medicine in the world that can do that for you it is stronger in its effect than morphine and that's coming from a doctor <laughs> <laughs> so i'm telling you there's something magical in it um and i i try to replicate those experiences for my children um i have a uh, an 8 year old and uh, i'm a i'm a good pakistani cook but i have my flavor is a bit more sort of fusion now my mother in law is an exquisite pakistani cook and my 8 year old um this made me happy not sad some people might think it would make me sad but it made me happy he said the best food he's ever eaten is when he goes on the weekend to his grandma's house that's my husband's mother to his grandma's house and it's her dal and her freshly cooked chapati that is his ultimate favourite food and I just thought what a memory for an eight-year-old to have because you know 
that gift that a grandparent has given their grandchild in the form of that muscle memory of a plate of home-cooked dal and roti or chapati, you know, that she makes himself. He he knows now and he will always know that that is where he will find comfort. Have you acquired your mother's recipes and your mother-in-law's recipes for your books? Because you've had two very successful books. The one that I'm looking at at the moment is called Foodology, which is a great name. And it's a lovely collection of stories and information and recipes, mm. which is quite an unusual combination. But I think a lot of people take their cookbooks to bed to read, and this is one that I'll be taking to bed to read, certainly. Oh, thank you. That's a, that's a lovely compliment. Some people tell me they read it in on the toilet seat, which is the best compliment ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> my first cookery book is called Kazana, and it's about Indo-Persian cuisine. And certainly there are many recipes in there that I have taken from my grandmother on my maternal side, paternal side, from my children's grandmothers, so my mother and my husband's mother. They have certainly found their way into the book. By no means all of them, though. And I just have to tell you, I mean, I, 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 I know I'm a competent good cook. I won MasterChef, you know, but, but they are better cooks than me. They have some magic in their hand that I don't possess when it comes to cooking those recipes. And they can cook them and I can cook them and we can follow the same instructions and theirs will turn out better. I think you're being very modest, although probably to win MasterChef, it requires a different set of skills or some additional skills from pr- cooking marvellous, perfect food, doesn't it? I expect you're you right, a, Orlando. You need a kind of uh, cool nerve, don't you? Well, I think I have that, um, which is probably one of the key to my successes on the show, actually, because I'm able to talk myself into virtually dealing with virtually any stressful situation. So... Um, that's part of the training that I have as a medical registrar. Um, you know, I'm trained to deal with cardiac arrest. I'm tra- trained to deal with multiple people unwell at the last, at the same time. I'm trained to deal with talking to family members who have, um, you know, uh, who have uh, patients, relatives who are extremely unwell. I'm trained to do all those things. And because of that, I think it gives me perspective that actually cooking a plate of food for two judges under time pressure is in relative terms, um, you know, something that I can do. And when you have that positivity and faith in yourself, I think it spurs you on. So much about the competition is a combination of skill and nerve. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky that I had the nerve and I didn't stress out. And then the skill, luckily, I had built up over time and certainly finessed my skills while on the show because we forget that going on MasterChef and the six months of filming that culminates in the show being produced is almost like doing this accelerated GNVQ in cookery. You get enormous exposure to Michelin star chefs and, you know, other chefs of an incredible calibre and very quickly as well. And you learn not just from the feedback that you're given, but the feedback that everybody else has given around you. So I went into those experiences like a complete sponge. I was just imbibing every piece of information I could around me. I'd, I'd talk to the sous chefs in various Michelin star establishments and I'd say, 
Um, so uh, how exactly do you set your panna cottas? And uh, I'd ask them, you know, all the tricks of the trade. I'd, I'd just keep asking them questions and they were delighted that someone was taking an interest. You know, it's not, they're not secretive about these things. They just do them incredibly well. And, uh, you know, I, I think treating it as a learning experience probably is what gave me success on the show. Um, now, your favourite dish that you are going to share with us is lamb and sweet pea samosas. Mm. Tell us about this dish and why it's your favourite, Salia. Oh gosh, I mean, um, a a samosa, that triangular golden crusted piece of beauty, is just one of the most glorious specimens of food to exist on this planet. It tastes so good. You know, (laughs) I mean, you have the perfect golden crisp exterior. You have an interior which is meaty, umami and Moorish salty. And then you have that contrasted with stud, like studded with these little emerald green peas, which are like little bursts of sweetness against all that salty crunchiness that you've just swallowed. I mean, you, it, this is a marriage made in heaven from a purely scientific perspective. You look at this dish, this dish is very clever because it's hitting a lot of sensory spots in your mouth. The textural shape, the shape of it, the portability of it, you know, the fact that you have to work out whether you eat the corners or the sides first. Which is the correct one? Well, for me, it's corners, but we can still be friends if it's sides. (laughs) No, I'm going to to do exactly what you say. (laughs) So do we eat all three corners first and then go in? I tend to eat one corner and then work down towards the uh, perpendicular side. Right. See what I mean? mm-hmm. yeah. So progressively getting more filling in each bite until you reach the last two bites, which are the two crusty bit ends. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. This is the regulation way to This is my regulation enjoy. way. And we, we just had a lot of samosas growing up. And um, I remember being my earliest memory of samosas is when I was, I think, about five or six years old. Really, really young. And uh, in Pakistani families, particularly, you know, in in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the main ways of socialising was to go to one another's houses on the weekend. And the person who was hosting would cook an array of food. And uh, often there would be tea served with snacks prior to a late lunch or dinner or an early dinner. And one of the key staples on the um, chai platter is also a plate of samosas and they always will be freshly fried you can smell them from a mile away and I remember this I I, I know who it is in our family but they're quite distant relatives and I we went to their house and my mum sort of was in this I was with my one of my cousins and my mum was sort of like really keen on impressing them um, because that's a big part of Pakistani culture as well, you know, like demonstrating that you have really well-behaved children, um, you know, who who will listen and sit nicely and have their hair done. Like and, your children. Yeah, well, yeah, I wish. <laughs> um, you know, the, the children that do all these things. And uh, she said to us, you know, um, would you like a samosa? And my cousin and I were sitting next to each other and we sort of put, she put one in each plate and there was about seven or eight on the plate and I looked at him and he looked at me and we were just like, they were delicious. They had peas and lamb in them. They were homemade. They were crispy and we were hungry because there'd been a long car journey to get there and we just ate and ate and my mum kept giving me these 
death stares. I mean, <laughs> it was like piercing death stares, but we just couldn't stop eating them. And I remember, I still remember to this day, we got in the car and she said to me, to me and my cousin, my cousin, she said to my cousin and I, that I, why did you eat all those samosas? They're going to think we don't feed our children. <laughs> They're going to think that, that you're greedy. I'm like, you know, oh, just a poor child who just wanted to eat samosas. Um, so th- there's a lot of early memories, um, memories punctuated by family values, uh, conversations that happen in Pakistani households, loving conversations, affection. You know, giving someone a plate of samosas is a great gesture that shows affection for the person in front of you. I wish I could give samosas to every single patient that comes to hospital. I think it would make them better much faster. (laughs) So what are the non-negotiables about samosas? The non-negotiables. What what do they actually have to to be? Well, for me, um, they must be triangular. Uh, Have Have you ever tried them in other shapes? Well, I mean, sopimes people sort of like make diamond shapey ones or they make like sort of om- oblongy triangular ones. And... If you could see Salia now, you'd see the distaste with which she's <laughs> indicating these different shapes of illegal samosas. Yeah, it's like I've smelt something bad, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, it, they must be perfectly triangular. Yeah. So by that, I mean, every side of the triangle must be equal sized. How do you how do you do it? To cut the the square accurately, then to get yes, the, exactly. To cut cut it, cut it with a template or measuring it or well, you st- there's a couple of ways of doing it. One of the ways of doing it is with thin pastry. That you start with um, a rectangle of a medium length and you fold over to create two triangles because it needs to be folded over each other to get two paste- thin pastry layers. Right, yeah? yes. And yeah. then you sort of paste it together. That makes the perfect crisp triangular samosa. The other thing that you can do, which I also do, is when you're making pastry, samosa pastry from scratch, you make a dough, quite a firm dough, roll it out into a circle, flat circle, and then you halve it to make two semicircle shapes. Yeah. And then you pick up each semicircle and fold it into a cone. Yeah. 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 And then you stuff the cone and pinch the edge and then just flatten it a little bit so it resembles a triangle. Right. Yeah. Um, almost like an ice cream cone that yeah. you stuff in and then sp- sort of seal the top. So that's a- another way of doing it. But those produces, those two methods produce very triangular samosas. You know, if your samosa is starting look- to look like a spring roll, you've done something wrong. <laughs> and the pastry needs to be very thin. And it- it's quite a, it's not a rich pastry at all, is it? Well, I mean, you say that, but there are huge variations. Um, we talk about garazi samosa and non-garazi um, samosa. Now, that, that garazi means paper-like, okay? And uh, in Pakistan, that garaz is paper. So papery samosas are the ones that are made with like um, almost phyllo-like pastry or wonton-like pastry. You know, the type of pastry that's very thin, very crisp. And you can almost see through it. You can almost see through Mm. it. Exactly right. They're delicious, very Moorish, but they are not the original street samosas. The original street samosas are made from a dough of flour, water, oil and salt, um, which is a firm dough let to rest, which is allowed to rest. And then, you know, they are the dough is then shaped into those circles, like I said. And and but you know, the, the texture that you get with those samosas is not quite so papery. It's almost a bit more short crust like. Yeah. 
So they they do differ. Uh, whether if you ask me which one I prefer, look the the, the traditional one part of me likes the non-papery ones because they are the original, right? Um, and they are they are uh, the archetypal recipe that has basically come to this exist in this day from the 11th century. So 11th century Persian historians have documented samosas and how they've been made with sort of nuts and sweet spiced fillings. And the that original recipe does have the same value today. So that I love that because of its historical context. I love the fact that that recipe traveled through the Middle East into the South Asian con- um into the South Asia, you know, it passed through the Hindu Kush. I mean, it's amazing. Samosas mm. have gone everywhere with us. It's a real story of globalization, the history of a samosa. However, the kaghazi samosa, the the thin papery ones um with the phyllo like pastry i mean they've got that crunch that you love you know they they appeal to our generation of crunch loving crisp eaters yeah yeah um and, and i this, think it's partly the noise of the the noise is so satisfying of a good crunch isn't it oh it is as it well is. as the way it acts in your mouth yes it absolutely springs to life. it just brings to life and um you know the op- the optics of uh, the uh, sorry the the auditory stimulus that you get from your teeth into your ears is quite incredible. That acceleration well, and deceleration quite, of your teeth. They're near each other, aren't they? They're very near one it. another. Yeah. yeah. So the, the effect of sound on taste is highly underrated. Um, now, what kind of oil do we cook our samosas in? Oils. Uh, okay, so it has to be a neutral oil. Okay, there's no experimenting with is olive oil. Sh- or shallow or? Oh, no, a, deep. deep. A, a good D- deep fry. So, uh, does it need to be completely submersed? Yes. So proper deep fry. Proper okay. deep fry. I'm a doctor, but I love fried food. Okay, this is a weakness. It's my Achilles heel. I will admit to everyone that once in a while I like deep fried food. And a samosa must be deep fried. Shallow frying will just make the oil sort of suck into the pastry a lot more in order to achieve the most crisp, most oilless, um, less fatty samosa. You have to cook it at a medium to high heat in hot oil, um, submerged, because otherwise it will all just sort of shrink and the fat will go into it. Whereas you want to keep it nice and golden and crisp and keep the fat out of it. Do they sometimes burst in the, when you're frying them? Well. I mean, I have to say, I, I, it's been a long time since mine have burst, thankfully. <laughs> I think if you're doing it properly, they won't burst. But it can take a little bit of practice sometimes. The shaping or the cooking? Or the both. shaping is what's going to make it burst. Okay, if you've accidentally made your pastry a bit thin somewhere and then it's punctured, that's what's going to make it burst. If, on the other hand, it's all sealed nicely and there's no holes anywhere, you'll be fine. But then I, I've also sort of become a little a little bit experimental in my old age in that I have now started putting the very British cheddar cheese oh. inside a samosa. <laughs> now, Puritans don't, you know, just stop listening now, you know, um, or don't, <laughs> just I should don't also, be offended. <laughs> I should also interject that Salia is not anything to do with old age whatsoever. So <laughs> you've got many decades yet before you're going to quali- qualify for that. Um, any other tips for your particular recipe? We're going to run through the recipe in a bonus 
podcast. But um, any other any other dexterity tips, or does one need to be in a particular mood before one starts, or any other anything else you suggest? I'd love to say that if you're making samosas, it would be wonderful if you could make them with people. Because there's something wonderfully communal about samosas. I remember summer holidays. Um, my, my grandmother lived in Bradford, Yorkshire, and um, her she was widowed very young in life. And her support system was her sisters living all within a half mile radius of her. And every day they would meet. Every single day of their life, the sisters met. And my uh, in the summer holidays, when we were summoned to go to Yorkshire because my parents were doctors and working and couldn't get all the time off, my grandma would take us and keep us for you know a month at a time sometimes. And um, we spent all our time at her sister's houses. And one of the things that they used to do is all sit together and set up this sort of samosa party, right? So one of them would say, okay, well, I'll get the lamb and I'll cook it before you guys get here. Okay, and then that's my job done. I'm putting my feet up and putting the telly on and making the tea. And then the other two sisters would be there. One of them would be rolling out the pastry. The third one would be um, shaping them into the samosas and laying them on trays. And then the one who'd had tea and made the filling earlier would sort of be packing them and freezing them and you know saying, oh, well, that's yours done. That's the neighbor's done. That's the neighbor's neighbor's sister's done. That's the neighbor's sister's aunt's mother's done. You know, so, it, you know, they, they'd sort of do them in batches and they'd count how many they'd done. We're like, oh, wow, <laughs> we managed 120 today. <laughs> you know, it was... So you can make them, uh, make them ahead you can and make freeze them ahead. or chill them. Yes, yes. What an amazing story. Now, I have to ask you something, uh, but I don't know whether this is going to work for you because Good Food is running a campaign of Save Sunday Lunch. Do you ever get to eat Sunday lunch? Um, <laughs> so Sunday is my detritus day. Um, and what I mean by that is that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Sunday is my detritus day because it basically is my day where I empty the fridge out of all the leftover detritus. That means bits of, you know, uh, wilting cabbage or like a cucumber that's gone a little bit soggy or the strawberries that got frozen at the back. And, um, <laughs> you know, all the, all the stuff that is otherwise is going to go in the bin in the next 24 to 48 hours and I make it a ritual to make sure that on Sunday all of that is cooked because I hate waste I'm very frugal actually I think a lot of good cooks are frugal. I think we it's a sign of a good cook that you want to use the thing properly and honour your ingredients. Yes. So I, I think everyone would support you in that. Well, thank you, yeah. And, and, and what's the result like? Well, it's very variable, isn't it? I, mean, it? I can't imagine a strawberry, rockety, cucumber thing to taste that nice, particularly if it's all wilted. However, I do I do manage to pull, up, pull, pull out some good ones as well. Excellent. Well, we're saving Sunday lunch, but in a rather different way there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> now I've got some quick fire questions which I'm going to ask you, which we ask all our guests. Um, so just your instant, instant reaction. Well, one of them, you've already told us what music you listen, oh. you cook to. So that's um, your most well thumbed cookery book. Um, 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 Naked Chef. Naked Chef, great. Two, year 2000, I think yes. that came out of. Have you had it since you, since two thousand? Yes, and it's still still holding together. Is it yes. very very spattered? Well, I hope it's a bit spattered. Yeah, and we the, like the spattered. The spine's a little bit loose now, but we're we're keeping it together. Excellent. Um, a great cheap eats restaurant or pub or market, some economical place to eat uh, anywhere you like. Yeah, in Southall. 
uh, West London, there is a fantastic place called Kebabish. And it's a little restaurant. It's the first place I went with my husband after I met him. That's not the reason, only reason why I like it. They oh, do this. It's a nice reason, though. It's a good reason. <laughs> but I, I, we both love it to this day because they do something called chapli kebab, which is this huge um, Afghan style flat lamb kebab, which is the most juicy, moist thing you can imagine. It's sort of circular and flat and almost, you know, the size of your face. And they deep fry it in front of you in a vat of ghee and they give it to you all crispy outside and juicy on the inside with some naan bread and chutneys and it is just glorious it tastes so good and cheap fantastic um something that's always in your fridge something that's always, always in, my in your fridge. fridge something that survives sunday so, <laughs> um something that's always in my fridge i always 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 have butter um i i feel this this is a weird thing about me and butter i just don't feel right if the house doesn't have butter in it there's something wrong in life if you don't have some fat around excellent now confessions your biggest biggest cooking disaster Ah, uh, I once made uh, turkey for the family, um, which was so tough that it was practically inedible. Uh, now, food you've never tried? Sea urchin. Okay. It gives me the hippie not, not planning on not, it. No. Not planning on it. Um, guilty pleasure. This is an odd one, but ready salted crisps dipped in Greek yogurt. Oh. oh no, it's weird. Everybody thinks it's weird, but I've got my eight-year-old onto it as well, and the he swears by it. Listeners will be trying that. Try it. Any particular salt, flavor of crisps? Or just, ready just salted. Ready salted. Like nice, deeply salted. None of the low salt stuff, right? Like proper salted crisps, crunchy. Dipped in full fat Greek full yogurt. Full fat Greek yogurt. You know the Greek yogurt that's just slightly sour. You know that that real good Greek yogurt that's fatty and slightly sour and almost set. And almost yes, solid, exactly. Yeah. Or like a, almost like a cream cheese, right? Yeah. And then you go, and then... Sound effect. <laughs> That's fantastic. Sally, what a wonderful conversation we've had. It's been an enormous pleasure and an honour to meet you. Thank so you. good luck with your cook your many careers. <laughs> thank you <laughs> very thank much. thank you for coming now. And you probably want to go, go off and go to bed, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've been called by the nursery to say that my uh, two-year-old's had a temperature. So the nanny's picked him and brought him home rapidly. And I've got to release her. So I, I shall be running off home. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. 